Hello everyone and welcome back to Talking with the Wounded with me, your host, Ben Stevens. Before I tell you a little bit about what we've got coming up in this episode, which is the first one in the second series, I'd like to thank you all for your comments, downloads, likes and promotions of the first series. I'm amazed where my listeners come from around the world and I'm very grateful to those of you who've highlighted the podcast to your family and friends and colleagues, written about it, reviewed it or talked about it on your own podcasts. An even bigger thank you to those listeners who've donated to the charities that my guests have highlighted in their episodes. I started this podcast to shine a spotlight on the vital work so many charities do for wounded veterans. I wanted to bring to life the stories I'd heard of the work they do. I want a wider audience to hear how wounded veterans ended up needing these charities and the real life impact that they have on them so that you know what really happens with your donations. Hearing wounded veteran stories, laughing and crying along with them seemed a good way to start. You'd be delighted to know that in this next series, we're going beyond the world of the Grenadier Guards. Yup, there really is more to the armed forces than His Majesty's finest. Who knew? As it turns out, everybody. Anyway, in this episode, we're heading to the complete opposite of a guardsman. We're talking RAF. We're talking female. We're talking loadmaster, door gunner, guardian angel. You'll recall from the last series that all the physically wounded talked about getting picked up by a Chinook with a MERT team on board, a medical emergency rescue team. And usually once on board, this was the last thing that they recall before waking up in Birmingham. In the episode called Clickbait, Jason even mentions the soothing words from a woman in that crew as his broken body is placed on board. A Chinook is a huge helicopter with two sets of rotary blades on the top, one at the front and one at the back, making a very distinctive thumping sound when in flight. Arrival on board a Chinook via the ramp at the back, if wounded, is in the minds of most soldiers a good sign that you're going to survive. And the survival odds do radically improve due to the Merc team being there. But sadly, as my guest will allude to, that's not always the case. So let's get to my guest. She's the person who had the responsibility for everything that goes on in the back of a Chinook. From manning the door gun, suppressing the enemy so they can land and take off, to making sure everyone gets on and off safely. She secures and controls all the cargo and acts as another set of eyes for the pilot, a vital part of the team that enables these helicopters to do what they do. On social media, she's known as the Chinook Crew Chick, which is also the title of her book that was published in 2022 as an Amazon bestseller. She's also known as Chinny Chick, but here we know her as Liz McConaughey. Liz, it is a huge pleasure to have you as my guest. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thank you, Ben. Before we talk about your qualifications to be on the podcast that no one really wants to qualify for, can I just sum up your career very briefly? To get the full story, obviously, listeners, you can buy her book, which is a fantastic read. But in short, you're from a small town in Northern Ireland called Newton Arts. Have I pronounced that correctly? You have pronounced it right, yes. (laughs) You joined the RAF as air crew, where you spent the next 17 years, all of it in Chinooks. Age 21, you were the youngest air crew member to deploy to Iraq, and the only female crew member for four years, blazing a trail for women to take on this role. You did two deployments to Iraq, followed by 10 to Afghanistan. You've had your fair share of brushes with the enemy, as you guided your battle bus in and out of the firefights, collecting or discharging your human cargo. 
Some of those tools you were responsible for the Mert team, taking them in and getting them home with their precious cargo. You have quite literally shaken your body to bits, and it was injuries resulting from spending so many hours in the back of a Chinook that led you to be medically discharged. Does that all sound about right? That is. And we didn't just collect and discharge cargo, we collected and discharged bullets as well, I think, all the time. Every, everything required in the yeah. battle zone. Yeah. Okay, so where to begin? How about we start at the moment that you qualified for this podcast? And I know this might give it away for some people who will buy your book, but if they hear it here first, it doesn't matter. Can you describe how your life began spiraling out of control as a result of your operational experiences and what your injuries are and what happened? And then we'll go back to how that all happened. Yeah, backtrack from there. Well, I was medically discharged in 2019 after 17 and a half years, as you mentioned. And, you know, it was the job I had loved and the job I'd done my entire adult life, wearing my flying suit. And I think a lot of veterans listening to this will understand this. I wore my flying suit every day, like my Wonder Woman costume, and it had my brevi on the front of it that said Liz McConaughey, Chinook Crewman. And I often think we as military people wear our names on our chest, and is that so other people know our name, or so that we can look at it every day and go, that's how I am. And, and suddenly it was all gone. Uh, and I was discharged for two injuries. I have a cold weather injury from uh, escape evasion training and various hours flying in a Chinook at uh, 3,000 feet, and also a neck injury from, as you mentioned, being shaken to death because it's not a kind job on the body for anyone, especially if you're a female. So off I went into the civvy world at 37, not really knowing what to do next, I guess, because I'd never foreseen it coming, as with so many veterans that get mentally discharged. And, and things seemed okay until lockdown happened in 2020. And as lockdown progressed, obviously I was, I was on my own in my little apartment in Basingstoke at this point, having gone through a, a divorce. And I was very isolated. And I think that gregarious nature of most forces people, we love to chat to our own, don't we? And that shared experience down the pub on a Friday night, talking through those experiences, having a pint or two or 10, that was all gone. And suddenly I'm on my own. And that bit, that isolation really started to manifest. And the lack of routine and purpose that I had during lockdown, you know, I'm not unique in that experience in that I think most people can say hand and heart, they all lost their routine, certainly. And for, for forces people, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And for forces people, we thrive on routine, don't we? You know, you'll at least in some part of the day, you'll have a gym visit in there. You know, you'll do your, certainly on the squadron, we have a very, very laid out routine for the day. That was all gone. And actually, in terms of, again, coming back to the veteran thing, you know, people in the forces, we have a huge sense of purpose and it doesn't get much better than when you're in Hellman, for example, saving lives. And suddenly I had absolutely no reason to even get dressed. So I started to spiral and lack of routine and lack of any kind of physical activity, really, that went with that because we were only allowed it for 10 minutes exercise a day, if you remember at the very start. And I'd always used running as a coping mechanism for the trauma that I'd seen throughout my career. And suddenly, you know, that was my way of emptying the bucket, so to speak. And suddenly I wasn't even able to go running. So all these things compounded. Insomnia is a form of torture, a very effective one that we use very effectively. Yes. <clears throat> and I, I stopped sleeping. <clears throat> so it really came to head in the summertime when I was awake one night about 4am in the morning and I started to look up, got my logbook out and I started to Google some of the soldiers that we picked up on Mert who hadn't made it, who had died in the back of the aircraft. And that was a thing we'd never, you know, we'd never personalised the bodies when we were doing that task. They were just very precious pieces of freight that we had to get back. When you say you were looking them up, what were you trying to put a, a face to a name? 
I could understand looking up injured people and seeing maybe how their life had gone. Yeah. But you're looking up those that didn't make it. Why did you, why, you start with them? I have no idea. And it's a very good question. It was almost like I wanted to understand the loss. I think I wanted to understand and feel the gravity of what we had lost and what we had witnessed. And some of the, the chaps were married, some had kids that they'd left behind. One that really resonated when he, he'd got engaged before he deployed and never made it back again. So I knew that we're not stupid, us as veterans, we know when we're unraveling and all the red flags were there. At any point, I should have lifted the phone and, and called a friend and said, look, I'm not in a good way. Put your hand up, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't. And I, I often look back now and think, why did I not do that? And I, I suspect it's because being one of the only females doing the job for quite a long time, uh, and always being in the minority in that respect in, in my career, I was never made to feel like a burden being a female, which is a great testament to the forces in the RAF and Chinook Street as a whole. But I put this internal pressure on me never to be a burden and never to be the girl crying around the back of a tent at the, after a bad day in Mert. None of the lads would have cared if that had happened, but me and myself put this pressure not to let that happen. So I never picked up the phone and reached out for help with anyone. Because you thought in your case, it would be even more highlighted that oh, yeah. the only person who's putting their hand up is the woman. Well, yeah, I think yeah, as yeah. well, we just all think it's a sense of failure, isn't it? When we start as veterans, we, as forces people, we're trained to not break and not fail, go back into the fight, go back for some more. That's our job, that's what we do. And we there's still that stigma around if you break, then you are weak and then you are letting the side down and letting the team down. So I didn't reach out for help. It compounded and got worse and the insomnia got worse. And so you, you're carrying on searching people's lives. and Yeah, and every time I put my head on the pillow, I would hear noise. And when I say noise, it was almost just chatter and irrelevant thoughts bouncing around my brain. So much so, I mean, I remember trying to get sleep one night and running through the minigun stoppage drills for the aircraft. Drills I will never need to know again. They are completely irrelevant, but I was running through them in my head. And you, I couldn't even tie down a thought. You know, there was thoughts of, what was that person at school called that sat next to me in mass? Then there was minigun stoppage drills. Then there was, what was that hotel called on holiday 10 years ago? And I, it was like my brain was so busy, it was, it was not able to process anything. And it came to a head in August that year where I basically woke up one day and decided that I was going to end my life that night. And when I woke up in the morning and had those thoughts, I was really, really scared. So the first thing I did, because it's really hard to make a phone call when you're struggling like that. So I emailed my GP. I thought, I'm going to put it in words. And I emailed the GP and wrote basically along the lines of, this is me. I've woken up. I'm having suicidal thoughts. I'm really quite scared and I think I need to speak to someone. And I got an email back instantly from the pharmacy who were next door and attached to the GP surgery. And the pharmacy said, you've emailed the pharmacy by mistake, you need to contact your GP. So, <laughs> thanks for that, really helpful. So I then rang the GP, got a lovely lady on the phone and explained, this is me, I woke up this morning having suicidal thoughts. And she said, oh, we're really busy, can you call back tomorrow? Which was almost laughable when you look back on it now. And at that point, I crumbled and broke down on the phone. And she said, look, I'll get the GP to call you this afternoon. So he did call me about two o'clock. And he basically, again, I was at this point inconsolable down the phone. I could barely string a sentence together because the emotions had been building all morning. And I uh, explained what, how I was feeling. He said, I'm going to prescribe some antidepressants and they'll be ready this afternoon. And you can come and get them at four o'clock. And at no point did he say, do you want to come in and speak to someone face to face? Uh, and he didn't ask if I was taking any other medication uh, or look at my notes to see that I'd actually reordered a drug called amitriptyline on the Monday. 
and amitriptyline is a drug I've been given for my neck injury, which is a nerve blocker. Yeah. Lots of veterans are on it. Loads and loads of amputees are on it. Uh, but it's also an antidepressant. And the way antidepressants work is that they actually highlight your mood. So if you're in a bad place, they can put you in a worse place beforehand before sure. they elevate you. And I've essentially been taking amitriptyline since the Monday because it was helping me sleep. And it had hijacked my mood. And by the Wednesday, that's when I woke up and I was suicidal. So I remember hanging up the phone to the GP and thinking, well, that's it. You know, I've reached out to the professional now and even he doesn't care. And went across at four o'clock in the afternoon, picked up my lethal dose of drugs from the pharmacy, two bags of drugs from the pharmacy that I already emailed to tell them I want to kill myself. myself. And then went home, had in my apartment, did my hair and makeup. This sort of like how to, how not to, yeah. how not to deal with with someone who's suicidal. It was honestly, uh, you know, they end up phoning me a, a week after I came out of hospital, because spoiler, I survived obviously, and, and apologised profusely for the way it had all been handled. And I'm lucky that I'm alive for them to be able to do that too. But yeah, I, I wrote my suicide note to my parents. I had absolutely zero emotion for the entire day. It was like watching my life through a lens. It's the only way I can describe it. And it's, Quite calm, because you know what you're gonna yeah, do. It was and like a relief. Yeah. It, I honestly felt, as soon as I hung up from the GP, I'm, I'm not suffering yeah. anymore. Yeah, it was like someone had taken the weight off my shoulders and green light to go ahead with my plan. And when I say my plan, I literally did have a plan. I'd been on suicide websites, which is really scary that they even exist, to look at you know my how many amantrypsin I need to kill myself outright, and then calculated how many I could get. Oh, the, the, what in terms of this is my BMI? Yeah. How, how many tablets do I need? Yeah, and it's really scary that those <laughs> websites are out there, and you know they should be shut down. And it's laughable now when I look at it, but I was so robotic in my behaviour. And it's like a, one of the deliberate ops we used to plan on Herrick. You know, I'm so task focused. So I wrote my suicide note to my parents. And again, I know of people who have been touched by suicide over the years and way before this point. And I always used to think, you know, it's such a selfish thing to do because it leaves such a wake of questions behind. And it's the easy option. It's the coward's way out. And yet here I am writing a suicide note with not any a tear in my eye. Um, and then at midnight, I sat on the edge of the bed and took 95 amitriptyline. And I shouldn't really be here talking to you today. I was extremely lucky. I woke up two days later in Basingstoke Hospital and didn't know how I survived. Which you explain in your book about unravelling the mystery of you falling asleep in your bedroom and yeah. somehow now here you are in a hospital. Yeah. Well, the, um, the it do- looks like somewhere along the line you managed to operate a... M- your phone yeah yeah and the doc whenever i came around i had it i was intubated so i had a tube down my throat couldn't breathe was trying to pull that out so they put me back to sleep again and then they brought me around a second time and explained that i'd been brought in by an ambulance and i had absolutely no idea who had called an ambulance like had a neighbor find me had a friend find me no idea and it's like, you know when you have too many drinks on a night out and you wake up with one of those, like, how did I get home last night moments? I have Not that you would know, Ben. No, no. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking, talking about. about. But imagine that amplified yes. by 10 of, I don't know how I'm alive. You've just lost a period of... Yeah. yeah. And it turned out, two days after that, I got released from hospital, got home and was reunited with my mobile phone and myself and my best friend. Eventually, a while later, went through it when we were ready. And it turned out that... I'd called the Samaritans for 13 seconds at 10 to 1 and immediately after that phone call called 911 and that phone call saved my life and I don't remember making it. 911 which is the... American so version of us. <laughs> what happens when you dial 911 here? Well, apparently 
it goes through to the right people. So it goes back through the emergency services. And I have no idea why I called 911 and not 999. I think I'd been watching too much Netflix clearly during lockdown. But it, it obviously gets you through to the important people. Okay. And I, we actually only knew that a couple of days later when me and again my best friend tested it out. We thought, should we just dial it and see what happens? And, and it does. It connects you through to the emergency services. So you clearly mumbled something to them and they went... Yeah. But and they I, must have known how to... I mean, how did they... You must have told them your address? Yeah, and I have no recollection of the phone call, but I still think They'll to this day... They'll have a recording day, somewhere. Yeah, and I still think to this day... And I sometimes I wonder if it's my brain filling in the gaps or if I can actually remember it happening, but I, somebody saying, don't go to sleep, Elizabeth, don't go to sleep. Now, I, nobody calls me Elizabeth apart from my mum when I'm in trouble. <laughs> so that in my head doesn't make sense because I think I would have called myself Liz on the phone. Yeah. Now, unless at some point they obviously realised my full name was Elizabeth, but I, I, I will often wonder if that is what I remember subconsciously or if that was my brain filling in the gaps. But either way, that phone call did save my life. And I do think, you know, no matter, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners listening to this who will have those moments of depression and those moments of suicidal. There's no two ways about it. You know, us veterans, we had a hard paper round and a lot of us do suffer with our mental health. But no matter how dark it gets and no matter how bad you think things are, there is a will inside us all that wants to survive, even if subconsciously, that will will still be there. Yeah. That will, yeah. that will want to fight for your life. You get out of hospital, you work out how you ended up there. You've now identified there's a problem. You're then reaching out to the charities or they come to you, you know, a plan for somebody to help you through with your depression and making sure that you don't end up in doing this again? Yeah, great question. So I, I was lucky, obviously I came out of hospital. My brothers arrived down in Basingstoke where I live and I had a really good support network around me at this point. I was pretty much put on suicide watch for days though they were doing my head in. I couldn't go anywhere on my own, <laughs> even the toilet. They're like, we're coming, stand at the door. But so and two days after coming out of the hospital, I had to go back for what was essentially a clinical assessment on your you know, mental health. And I met these two lovely ladies in a little room next to the hospital and they talked me through and I had a chat about everything that happened. And at this point, it's fair to say I was really euphoric. I put the whole episode down to the amitriptyline and went, I'm so lucky to be alive, so thankful that I'm alive. I will never do that again. And it was all to do with the amitriptyline. So that was kind of my assessment day with them. And they gave me a poly pocket as I was leaving with Veterans Gateway circles on it. And they essentially said, you need to phone these people tomorrow. And then they will signpost you into the veterans charity system for all your mental health recovery. I said, okay, thank you so much. When do I see you both again? And they said, oh, you don't. I said, will you call me in a few weeks time? And they said, no, 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 that's, that's you done with us. And I thought, what a flawed system because I was lucky enough to go back out and my brothers were standing outside the, the clinic. But so many people would not have had that catch I've network. I've got, no, got nobody yeah. in support. And what's to stop them, you know, putting the poly pocket in the bin, going by a bottle of bleach and, and reattempting. And statistically, people who do have suicidal tendencies, if they fail, they reattempt within five days. So that whole system is extremely flawed. However, I uh, managed to make a phone call to the Veterans Gateway and then was straight in for some counselling with PTSD resolutions and then subsequently Health for Heroes. And, you know, I feel very privileged that we as veterans have got those charities to catch us really because that's not mod driven that's charities yeah and it's really wrong so at what that stage that is the does the mod does the raf find out hey one of ours has got an issue 
They probably found out by the means of Facebook many weeks later or the lovely rumour mill that we have in the yeah, forces. Was, yeah. But the RAF at no point have ever come back and said, look, you are one of ours, can we help in any way? And the, the mental health system within people who are serving in uniform is for people serving in uniform. And the second you're spat out of that, you're into the charity scenario. Okay. And I think it is a very flawed system. I get often get asked, how would you change the way people come out of the forces? And I do think that you can give your entire life to something. You know, I served 17 and a half years, which isn't really that long compared to many of your listeners will have done. But you can give your entire life to something and you don't just do it as a nine to five job. You live and breathe it. It becomes the fiber that makes you. And then you literally, when you leave, whether or not you're med discharged, you come out in your own terms, you hand your uniform in on a Friday, you get your ID cut up, yeah. and then you're out of the club. And it's a hard stop at the end. And on the Monday, Sorry. if you want to go back and see your mates on the Monday, it's not like a normal business or a corporate thing in London where you can just rock up for a coffee. You've got to park up, you've got to get a car pass, you've got to be escorted all of a sudden, even if you've worked in the same place for 25 years. And it is a really hard stop at the end. And I think we could be much better in how we siphon people out of the forces, you know, invite them back once a month or at least a month after they've left, or at check least, on them. Or at least in the world of such easy communication, even on Teams or Zoom or whatever, it can't be beyond the realms that there isn't a system whereby when somebody leaves, somebody sat in the MOD going, these are all the people that have left and these yeah. is, you know, here's the 115 calls we've got to make this month exactly that that month yeah and so you're happy you're sorted okay so we don't need to have any more contact with you absolutely and take the stabilizers off slowly yeah but also keep them on the list because sometimes for the first few months after you left you're all running around trying to get a job or sort your new life out or whatever it is it's not until five years later you're sitting there inspecting your navel going yeah I'm, I, I miss it, what the fuck am I I'm doing? I'm not doing it, yeah. yeah. And I, the fair to say, that's exactly what happened to me. The first year I was out, I was like, this is brilliant, cut the bungee, I yeah. can go to all this stuff, I can party all night, I'm not yeah. flying the next day. Life was so rosy for that first year, and then things caught up with me. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think it's fair to say, obviously we all know that PTSD has definitely got a lag time. And I remember the day I left thinking, I remember sitting in my living kitchen with a glass of champagne and toasting my ex-husband, at the, or my husband at the time, my ex-husband now, and he was ex-SAS. He got out the same year as me and we were like toasting each other and went, how have we got out alive? And like we've got our brains intact and our bodies intact and this shouldn't be the case. How have we dodged a bullet? And then obviously it caught me up yeah. a few years later. So, yeah. So, you get diagnosed with... PTSD? No, and I've still not had a diagnosis. You're... So I'm going through that at the minute. Okay. Depression? I mean, what is the diagnosis? That's... And again... You're in the void. You're in another... I'm in this. I'm still on the journey. So I've had three years of counselling with, again, various um, charities. Combat Stress has been absolutely phenomenal recently. And Op Courage stepped in last year because Uh I had another mini meltdown last March, having actually gone through the armed forces compensation scheme for some compensation for my neck and, and finger injury and through various loopholes which and I that's won't quite stressful in, in itself yeah and there's so many loopholes in that system uh, in terms of time you have to make the claim and various evidence you have to provide I, I, I went for a court hearing about it and was basically not treated like a criminal but a search before I went in they confiscated my water bottle in case I threw acid on the judge and took my compact mirror off me in case I slashed the judge and I was like I served my country for 17 and a half years. So I was made to feel <laughs> I've come here for money, yeah. not revenge. <laughs> and then they had five minutes with me and basically decided they're not going to give me any compensation. So only because of the loopholes in the yes. system. And I went home that day feeling 
I cried the whole way back from Portsmouth and and the next day knew I was in such a poor place again. I had to reach out for help. You're thinking the system really doesn't care. Yeah, and I'm so, I'm, you know, I've given them everything. I've bled for them. I've given them my entire soul. But, but your injuries are so clearly Cut as long, a result yeah. of this X equals Y. It's, it's such a clear-cut thing, but yeah. because you haven't logged it throughout your career or done it within six months of leaving, it, it. we can't pay out. And, you know, all my med notes said service reasons, attributable to service reasons, and that's not they were there a dispute, but as you will find with loads of things in the law, it's the time loopholes that they will get out on. So I ended up going in with Op Courage at that point, and Op Courage are a great service. You know, Johnny Mercer was quite instrumental in getting it spun up, yes. but it's an arm of the NHS essentially, but it's for people who are still serving, which not a lot of people know, and for veterans. Okay. And a lot of the counsellors are used to working with the veteran community, so they get it. And I think that's really important with any counsellor. I, I always say that counsellors are a little bit like shoes. There's nothing wrong with some of them, but they're just not the right fit. And I've had various counsellors over the years who have been absolutely great at their job, but I just didn't click with them. Yeah. So, but yeah, so what courage kind of took me under the wing last year, and and the the journey continues really. I've I'm waiting for a diagnosis of PTSD, but coming back to the compensation scheme, it's almost like the hardest thing to get out of anyone, and I think people are very reticent to put a stamp on stuff, and I'd be quite I'd quite like eventually to get that diagnosis so I can roll the line under it and walk away. But but, but in giving you that diagnosis. Does that then trigger you to be able to then go back and claim? Yeah. And therefore, is that yeah. why you think they might be? I have no idea. I, I don't know because the conspiracy theory, and I'm not conspiracy theorist, yeah. but you know, you would think it's civvies that are giving out this diagnosis. So it's nothing to do with the military. But I think there's still a lot of stuff. Maybe they they would rather fix you than diagnose you, which is a very good attitude to have, really. For me, they still think there's lots of stuff in there to uncover, which is probably true. And. I described myself in one counselling session as I felt like I was just a big bowl of spaghetti and they couldn't unpick me because I had so much stuff going on from my Herrick days and lots of stuff with my ex-husband that was still going on. I lost a very good friend to cancer and I had a lot of emotions in and around that and I felt like there was just this big, all these bits of spaghetti in a big bowl and it's like which strand do you pull first? And I think there's probably lots of people who say that. I think there's you know, us as veterans, it's not necessarily those moments on, on debt that break us. It's life back here in the UK that gets on top of you in the end. And I refer to it in the book as the domino effect. It was just those big dominoes toppling. And eventually I wasn't strong enough to hold them all up anymore. Stress keeps piling in. Yeah. yeah. And you'd probably agree with me is that the most simple life is the life on ops and on debt. Because all you have to do is do your job and sleep or maybe go to the gym if you want to. I think that's what's so attractive about taking guys away on an expedition like to the Yukon yeah all you've got to think about is getting from A to B food rest eat sleep canoe repeat <laughs> where, 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 yeah where, 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 you know security yeah where, where's a good place to camp not getting eaten simple, by bear <laughs> not getting eaten by bears. And but it's a very simple life yeah. and we all love it when our life is in our rucksack and on our back it really because life is, is simple yeah. and you know yeah what your job's got to do and yeah and you come out to the big wild world and there's a whole load of other things hammering away at you and you're going but I think where veterans really struggle and where I guess the PTSD does manifest is that our buckets are already full to like three quarters with things that we have seen around our time and that's the difference between us and maybe civilians it's civvy life I think that topples us in the end but it's only because our buckets are already full with everything from the military but it's an interesting thing though because not everybody has 
PTSD yeah. who've all experienced the same incident, doing the same thing, seeing, living it, and only one or two. So there's a mental... It's a very personal thing. Per, yeah. You know, I've got colleagues who have really struggled with different merch shouts for different reasons. There was one particular chap who he picked up a, a girl who was the same age as his daughter on the back of the aircraft and that really threw him into a spiral. And I remember picking up one particular merch shout where the chap on the stretcher on the floor in front of me had the same boots as my husband because my husband had had special issue SF boots, which the rest of the British Army didn't have. Only the SF boys had these. And I knew it wasn't my husband lying on the floor in front of me, but it was that little funny connection Correct. that takes you, it, it instantly projects you out of the moment on ops back to your normal life at home. And that's what seems to unhinge a lot of people, that that very quick switch from being back in Great Britain. Yeah. That seems to unhinge no, I a lot still, I still slightly shrink into my, my, my frame, my body when I hear the double thump of a Chinook coming over. Yeah. I just... <laughs> yeah. It can just... And it just takes you right back to a particular moment where you go, that was where we we all... Or yeah. whatever it was you were doing. And it, it can just take you to that moment, that noise, that sound. And there's so many veterans who love the sound of a Chinook still. Oh, I, 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 I love it. Yeah. I love it. And then I embrace it. And yeah. I go, oh, look at those. Aren't they amazing? Yeah. That thing shouldn't be up in the I sky. I mean, I did 17 and a half years on them. I did 3,000 hours flying on them. And I live in Bainstoke, like 10 minutes from camp. And I still run to the, the window like a four-year-old every to time see I see it. one. And video <laughs> it when I'm out walking with the dog. But there are equally uh, so many veterans I've spoken to who just can't hear the sound of it, as you said. And uh, another crewman I know who just can't even smell OM15, which is the hydraulic fluid we use in the back of the aircraft, because smell is another thing. It's very emotive. Yeah. And it takes him straight back to you know yeah. his PTSD. So I think there's all those triggers and all those senses that catch you off guard really yeah. quickly. Looking back at your career, highs and lows, you talk about Mert a bit. What 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 are the sort of only if you want to go there, the standout moments for you? Because you talk about how that was really rewarding. That was yeah. You, you know taking those teams in and, and collecting yeah. wounded. Yeah, it was absolutely the highs and the lows, like you said, of my career. I think you know, there's definitely moments that stand out. I, remember, I still remember the first time seeing a dead body in the back of the aircraft. And actually it was a, a Marine, it was a Kajaki Dam, very early on in my career. And it was a Marine called Marine Curry. And I remember his name because just the word curry is, you know, we always go yeah. out for a curry all the time. And he came on in a bivy bag because we didn't really have body bags in the theater at this point. And it had a bit of tape across the top of the baby bag, which said curry on it. And I just, that, that, well, and he came right up, the, the carried the body right up to the front where I was stood at the front door. And, and I, that vision will always stay with me. And that was the first, the first body I ever picked up. And then it became so frequent. At one point early on in, in Herrick, we were there when Camp Bastion was being built. And there were very few fobs up and down the Hellman Valley. Merch shouts were very benign most of the time. It was vehicle incidents or people falling off Hesco. And we had had to pick a para up once who had jumped off the water tower at Kajaki Dam and split himself in two. It's probably a polite way to put it, split his ass open. Yeah. And uh, it's fine, but it was quite comedy. So we had, yeah. the, we had the highs and the lows. But from about 07 onwards, that's when things got really kinetic. And it went from just picking up people who had injuries to picking up bits of people and torsos and, you know, trying to count you've got four casualties on board and we've only got three bodies on board. That's the fourth casualty and it's half a body in a bag. You know, and that's not exaggerating. That is how some of the days went. And, and seeing people literally die at our feet, but also seeing soldiers come back to life at our feet. And I've picked up so many merch outs where the casualty has already been dead on arrival at our ramp. 
and has been brought back to life by the medics in the back of the aircraft, which is testament to them. Amazing. And coming back from your interview earlier, at one point in Afghanistan, it was the only place in the world where you could survive a non-survivable injury. So if you process that statistic and just think about that, that's incredible. And that is purely down to the, the medics that we carried. And the Mert aircraft went from being a Chinook with a bit of med kit down the back, a first field dressing and a tourniquet, to having literally a mobile operating theater down the back. Well, that's the thing. A lot of the guys talk about arrival on the back there, the tubes and the jabs going in, no, it... their legs are missing, their whatever, and and then they wake up in Birmingham and they're like, yeah. that was my last memory was being thrown in the back and then this team descending on me. Yeah. And I mean, my busiest day on Mert, we had 14 shouts back to back and it was just chaotic. It was just picking up nine liners, which for anyone who doesn't know what they are listening, that's the reporting format for a casualty. So we'd get a nine liner, we'd go and collect them, we were bringing them back and we were getting another one on the menu. nine lines of information. information. And very often we would launch just with the first two lines, which was uh, location and call sign. And as long as we had a grid to go to and we knew who we were talking to, that was the important bit. If we were lucky, we would get the third line down, which was the, the injury. So whether or not it was cat A, B or C or T1, 2 and 3. And that was a, a T1 or a cat A was they literally have less than an hour to live. 3 or a cat Charlie was walking wounded. And then a T2 or a cat Bravo, <clears throat> it was something in between. Yeah. And it would range on those. We would sometimes go for a... Because as you know, you know, none of these injuries happen where it's just, you know, someone gets hurt, especially with a blast injury. It's never usually just one person. If the mechanism of injury is a blast, an IED, there'll be multiple injuries of different levels. Very often we'd launch for a T2 and it would become a T1 on the way there. And when you hear that being passed on the radio when you're airborne, suddenly, I mean, we always will go as fast as we can, but there's that feeling of helplessness of we can't rip the wings off this anymore. We are getting there as fast as we can. Sometimes you'd be held off because the theatre commander would deem the threat too, you know, too um, high for us to go in. Because actually, even if a soldier's bleeding out on the ground, losing a Chinook, you know, a, one of the biggest assets in theatre with all the pilots, air crew, medics, force protection no on board. no for anybody else. Yeah. yeah, so they did have to, that balance Somebody to, has to, to make do. that cool. Yeah, and the most frustrating thing was us having to hold off while hearing, because we still had a connection with the, the TACnet, and hearing the guys in the ground going, he's bleeding out. And we, we literally got a straight feed to the guys in the ground. So we could hear when they were running to the extraction site with the stretcher and they'd be blowing out their absolute hoops. And we'd hear that all on the radio. Yeah. So yeah, the worst day was doing a 14 shots. And I think the darkest day, that against days in my memory really, is picking up five of the rifles who'd all been killed in one day from a fob at Inkerman. And we picked them up and just watching five stretchers being carried past me, I was at the ramp that day. And we sat down on the aircraft floor, and they all had different flags over them. So one had a Union Jack on the, the top of the body, uh, another one had a, a, a rifles flag, there was a Welsh flag, a Man United flag, and a Liverpool flag, I think. But they all had flags on them. The guys touched, put the bodies down, touched the bodies, and then went back over my ramp and into the fight. And you know, I've got through a lot of my career on a bit of a wink and a smile, you know, being a female crewman, I'm not the strongest girl in the world. So I need to get the guys, when they're bringing all their kit on board the ramp, uh, to give me a hand moving it to where it needs to be and help me, you know, yeah. can manhandle this stuff. And usually a wink and a smile gets me what I need done. But that day, you cannot, there's nothing I can say to those guys that's going to make that day better for them. So it was, but we very much immunitized ourselves to it. You know, I normalized trauma so much throughout that campaign that by the end, my last merch out, we picked up an American who'd been killed and we picked the body up from Edinburgh, Fob Edinburgh. And I was handed his foot in a clear plastic bag. And I just set it at my feet like it was the most normal thing in the world, you know, and that 
look back now, that is not normal things for anyone to see. But I think that's where we as forces people have a lot in common with the you know medical staff, the NHS, firefighters and police force, because all of us as a group of people, we normalise seeing that dark stuff. Well, and often create dark humour around yeah. it as a coping mechanism. And that I absolutely think that that's what gets us through until the music stops or the humour stops. And the pictures come back. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because it's not normal. And there's champagne moments for you. I mean, did you like going into the fight with you with your minigun? Did you? Because <laughs> for you join the infantry and you, it's a difficult thing to admit, but you you want to have a you want to have rock. a go. You want to have a good you, fight. You want to can we do what we've been training to do all day every day? Yeah. You know, are we? We're and you and you get a feeling in your unit and your team or whatever, and you you're like we're on fire. We're gonna yeah. We could do this. You feel and, invincible. And, well, and yeah, we're all young or whatever it is, but you're not asking for a fight, but you want one because you want to find out. Yeah. So that's a normal thing for a sort of infantry because it's like, well, your job is actually to close with the enemy and get up close and personal and make it happen. Yeah. That's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind when you say, I want to be air crew. Yeah. No, it's a good, really good point. We but when you get in there and you've got your... Massive gun. <laughs> got, your, got your massive minigun, which, I mean, God, I'd love I mean, to walk around with one of those. It's called the minigun, and the thing is it's huge. huge. It's yeah, 57 yeah. kgs, and it fires 3,000 rounds a minute. There's nothing it's, there's mini nothing about mi- it. No, it's... So it always used to make me chuckle that it was called that. Um, Why isn't it called the maxi gun? I know, I know. Well, we nicknamed it the crowd pleaser because it, you know, if you fire it at night, because we have four bit, which is four ball and tracer rounds. So, yes. So it's it lights up the sky at night Continuous stream of, yeah. yeah, yeah, like we have with the GPMG. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly the same. <laughs> When you get to the moments where you're using that in anger, yeah, is that a buzz for you, or what you, you, I mean, I know you, it's not a buzz, but it's it's a, it's a very heightened state of alertness. Yeah. and it's funny you saying that because I I never did, and I wonder if I didn't because I was air crew and our job was always to operate the aircraft. Having the aircraft weapons were always there as a defensive weapon for the aircraft, unlike the Apaches who had an offensive, offensive weapon. Yes. You know, and our rules of engagement changed for various different deployments out in Herrick. So we were on Card Alpha at the start, and then that changed to 49 Alpha, which was essentially anything wearing a black turban north of Highway 1. We were within our rights to engage, even if they didn't engage us. Okay. Which brings with it a whole different set of moral compass moments. A whole load of choices. Yeah. What they're doing, they're not a danger to me. Yeah, and I think there's a huge amount of, you know, having control of a trigger demands a huge amount of respect because your action is irreversible. And there was certainly people around the wing who were more gung-ho and who would have taken any opportunity, let you say, to have that, you know, I'm here to shoot my weapon, I want to get lines down. So quite like sort of Northern Ireland, yellow card, sort of actually... Yeah, and the Americans were just hosing everything at one point. But you have to live with the consequences of pulling that trigger forever. So I, and I used to be a gunnery instructor, so I would do a lot of instructing in and around the new crewmen coming onto the wing in and around the moments of decision. And it's a very fine balance because you have to make sure that they're not scared to pull that trigger when they need to, to defend the aircraft. But you also have to make them understand the gravity that when you that bullet goes out, you can't take it back. Certainly if there's 3,000 rounds coming out. Yeah, yeah. And I always used to say, no, really, no matter what the rules of engagement are, you need to, in your own self, think, if it's him or me, it's him. When it comes to that 50p, 20p moment, you go, if I don't pull this trigger now, 
I'm going to die or someone on this aircraft is, you, that's the time to pull the trigger. We call it the 50p dustbin lid, oh, right? <laughs> but, uh, and you know, I've had loads of contact over the years on the Chinook Force. I think every single person on the Chinook Force has. And again, normalizing trauma, we started in normalized danger because we were getting RPG'd, rocketed, mortared nearly every day. And I've had a couple of very near misses. I had one bullet that went in over my head about a foot and a half above me. And another one that was caught by the ballistic protection panel that I was stood on during a deliberate op. But I distinctly remember the first time I did get shot at and my overwhelming emotion was cheeky bugger. It was like, how dare you? How dare you shoot at me? It wasn't like, oh shit, that was close. It was, how, how very dare you? And like, yeah, really pissed off almost. So yeah, there's been moments where I've had to put rounds down, but again, I've, and I, I coming back to the original question of whether or not like sort of you get a buzz from it. I never really did. I was very cautious of pulling the trigger, but I wonder if that's because of my aircrew role or because it, well, and the kind of ethos that went around that, or if it's because I'm a woman. And there's a definite distinction between action men and Barbie dolls, so to speak. You know, women generally aren't, I don't think, as aggressively minded as men. And I've done, I've chatted loads of people about this, but I do think most little boys growing up, they want to be a soldier. And most people that join the military, it doesn't get much better than being an infantry soldier or a red arrow if you're joining the Air Force. People I, want to be at the point I don't end. remember anybody in the school playground saying, I want to be an accountant. <laughs> no, exactly. I want to be a farmer, a nurse, a soldier, a cowboy. Yeah. I know, it's a sort of indoctrinated kind of thing. And it's the ultimate test, isn't it, of your own personality and your own moral courage and fibre if you can you pull the trigger or not when it matters because it comes back to the alpha male thing of can you protect your family or can you look at you know very going way way back to cavemen can i protect the woman which is what we were you know it's genetically how we're made up and i think i was always very aware of that being a woman on the fleet was that if we went down despite the fact we were all trained in escape and evasion we all do the escape and evasion course before we go it's a prerequisite i was hugely aware my whole time of the fact that if we went down I was the liability, you know, I was the one who, you know, would be, if we're all locked in a room and we're going through an interrogation, you know, I'm going to be the one that somebody else will start singing like a canary if they start torturing me, because that is just how genetics are made up and, and men want to protect women, even though I was always just one of the lads. Yeah. I was very aware of that. And uh, so I probably why I got so good at running, because I thought I don't want to be the liability when it comes to running. <laughs> I at least want to keep up with them. So uh, if we're all on the run, I don't want to be the knacker at the back who can't keep up. So I got very good at running throughout my career. But I wonder why maybe that's where coming back to what you said about the buzz. If it's a, a genetically male thing that want to get runs down. I, I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> that whole women in the front line question service is an interesting one that yeah. has currently raised its head again now with women entering trench systems in Ukraine and people discovering that actually um, uh, it's not working out very well. Yeah. And it's the military going, we can't, we're not putting women into a trench system to fight Russians isn't fair on them because they're what we what they're experiencing is that the women are losing because they're not big and strong yeah and it gets down to being big and strong when yeah. you're at the pointy end of a bayonet and i think that the, and, the and that's and that's an been... interesting thing that we, we sort of all sit there and we kind of go all but we all know that's the case and i know you can pass a para course and i know you can pass a marine course and you can do all of that but the weight's different when you get to the real world yeah. that you carry and when you get into the fight 
it's just it, it's a, it is a different thing. Yeah. Not that you shouldn't be there. I'm not saying any of that. You know, for, yeah. for anybody that wants to jump on board here, <laughs> I know, but, jump, oh, they're, but, they're and there will be. But it's an interesting conundrum. And I think that the dispute has never been whether or not women are capable of the fight, because I think, as you said, totally women, capable. Have, and women have proved that they can do that. It's more the, yeah. of the high it changes the men's behaviour around them. That's so Seven Squadron, which is the Special Forces Tunic Squadron, have never had, only this year, have invited females to go along and, and, and fly on the squadron. But historically, they've never had females. And it's never been written in black and white. But, you know, I remember throughout my career being asked repeatedly, would I want to go on and be on Seven Squadron? And they do a lot of the work with the SBS and the SAS. And I remember at the time thinking, it's not about whether or not I could do the job. It's about if the guys are living in a crater in the middle of nowhere in isolation, waiting to do a job, having a female there changes the whole dynamic of that in terms of the folks can get quite feral when they're on their own in that kind of environment. But just having a woman there changes how they act. It changes, again, if you all got captured together, how they would conduct themselves in the the capture. And I do think it's never... I think we lost focus on what the debate was about the women are always going to be well a lot of women will be capable of doing the job that's not why it's dangerous to put them essentially aboard no. the front line it's about how the men will definitely it's, react yeah it's the human behavior behind it yeah rather and that's than just biological yeah. stuff yeah no interesting that's a whole new right world. off topic <laughs> we've right off topic but that's okay so you've got your champagne moments this incredible career where you've done amazing amazing things and i know from you know the previous Guess they talk just about how amazing that whole Mert thing was and they step on something and then they wake up in Birmingham and they're going, wow, an awful lot of people have joined the dots for me to still be here. Yeah. And that goes from you know, the pilot to, to you, to the Mert, to the rest of their team, getting them across the IED-laden poppy field and getting them in the back. There's a lot of pieces that make them still here today. So there's a huge amount of pride, presumably, from the work that you've done. No regrets? No. Despite the mental scars, a lot of it is left on me. If I had anything in the world, internal life, win the lottery or a rewind button, I'd take the rewind button and I'd go back and do it all again. You'd do it all again. It was brilliant. I I wouldn't rejoin now. That is a very different conversation. But I would go back to 19 and join up and do it all again. It was a brilliant career. And I think most veterans will say it was probably the most alive they ever felt when they were in Herrick doing the job out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd do it all again, but you wouldn't do all of it again. You'd, You'd stop... You wouldn't leave, you wouldn't get out. Because when you were medically discharged, they did offer you what we refer to as the mahogany bomber, you know, the, the desk the job. The desk job, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, which, looking back now, thinking well, you wouldn't have then fallen off a cliff face, you might still run into the window looking at helicopters, yeah. but you would have still been in the tribe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's... And a new- part of it, and probably blazing a little niche in some other little corner of the RAF world. Possibly, and it's something that I look. I ask, I ask myself that question loads after the overdose of like, did I make the right decision to leave rather yeah, than to take the medical discharge rather than take the desk job? And I still think, looking back, you know, I think our biggest moments of failure, and you know, I talk a lot about resilience in the talks I give now, and I misunderstood what resilience meant my entire forces career I thought resilience meant unbreakable and every year when I got it in my report you know Sergeant McConaughey is so resilient Flight Sergeant McConaughey is so resilient I thought unbreakable so when I was asked to go away again do an extra debt do a deployment do an exercise whatever oh yeah I'll go because I'm unbreakable because it says in my report I'm resilient 
And I only learned once I'd come through the overdose what the true meaning of resilience is after I did an interview with someone. And she said, Liz, you're, you know, there's a theme, you're really resilient. And I said, well, I'm not because I'm broke. And she went, well, that's not what resilience means. And I genuinely went home that day and looked it up. And I then understood that resilience is about bending, breaking, falling over and using those failures in life to kind of learn from and add to your armor for the next battle. And I've learned more in the last four years about myself than I ever did in the time I was in the military. And I think I've learned more from failure than I ever did from some from success. So coming back to the question of would I rather stayed and worn my nice blue uniform, which I think got dusted off three times in my entire career. No, I definitely made the right decision. And, you okay. know, I'm lucky that I'm still alive to be able to trailblaze now. But even if I hadn't survived, I still, I, I'm maybe a bit of a believer in fate really, but I do think that I could never, I'm a huge believer you need to have purpose in life. And that, that purpose to serve is what makes us all put the uniform on because none of us do it for the money really do we let's be honest or the lifestyle we all do it because there's a seed inside of us all to oh, make girls also might tell you something different <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> nice maybe. lifestyle sometimes yeah all right maybe. I'll give you that <laughs> but you know we do it because we want to make a difference yes. and we want to have purpose and that doesn't change when you take that uniform off uh-huh. which is probably why so many of us struggle when we go into civvy street because yes you've taken the uniform off but that thing that drives you is still inside mm-hmm. wanting to make a difference and to serve and I think I would never have got that same purpose flying a desk, booking people on courses and just build up some resentment. And yeah. Frustration and being that and Oh, did she used to be a crewman on the squadron? I never wanted to be that girl at the beer call. Oh, she used to be. Yeah, she used to be. So yeah, definitely I think and certainly the jobs I've had since leaving, the the best ones have been the worst paid, but it was for charities because again it's about making a difference. Purpose. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because some of the guests on previous episodes were offered sort of various jobs in the stores or something, you know. Yeah. They could have sort of remained in the tribe a bit, but they they all, yeah, they, they all went, no, yeah. I'm either in it doing what I wanted yeah. to do or, 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 or I'm off somewhere else. Yeah. So you wrote a book which has gone down a storm <laughs> and poetry? You yeah. Write, you, you, you write poetry? Yeah, and the poetry started first. The poetry was kind of just started to fall out of me during lockdown, before even the overdose. Um, and just to put this in context, I have no literary background whatsoever. You know, I did I English. I was going to say, GCSE. where did this all come from? <laughs> I did English GCSE at school, and uh, and that was it. And I've never written my entire life. I've never kept journals. It's never been my thing whatsoever. And I really don't read books, which is hilarious because people keep sending me books now. That I'm. The- I laughed. You sent me a copy of your logbook. Yeah when we were trying to ascertain some dates. And I think it's your handwriting. Oh, it is, With yeah. some Tipex. Oh, there's Tipex well, in every page in my logbook. But one of the words that's been Tipex and rewritten is Chinook. And I'm thinking, surely that that's, the, that's the one word you know how to spell. <laughs> I never even noticed that. There is Tipex in And I looked at this and just thought, my... what? Yeah. <laughs> every single page in my logbook has got Tipex on it. Okay. But, but no, so, I'm never... But, but definitely... you write poetry. Yeah, so I started writing poetry and it used to like literally take me five minutes to write some of these poems and some of them have been picked up by the British Legion and some of them people have read at Remembrance Services and whatnot because they all focused around that theme of, of Herrick and some of the sites and things we saw out there. And one of my best mates said, when I was going through my recovery journey on the other side of the overdose, said, Liz, can you not just like go for a walk and start writing about birds and nature and stuff because it might be more helpful for you? And I was like, but that's not what it's about. It's like the, the words in the poems 
flow through me. They have to come out. And again, it's that brain dump thing. But I found it quite cathartic writing the poetry. Uh-huh. And then obviously the book, you know, it, people still can't believe that it took three weeks to write that. But it literally was just a brain dump onto a laptop. And they do reckon everyone's got one good book in them, don't they? But you just have to have the time and believe in yourself, I think, enough to write it. And I get asked all the time for advice well, on Especially if you're not a writer and English isn't yeah. your thing. You, you, there's a whole host of reasons why you shouldn't be like, oh my God, somebody's going to pull me apart because my English yeah. is appalling or whatever. But actually... I think that was the beauty of mine because I never thought anyone would read it. So I didn't have that fear of what will people, will people like the sentence? Will okay. people think this is a good story? I, I, re- I wrote it like a, like a diary almost. And, and I think for anyone who is struggling with mental health at all, writing is, a, even if you just do a short story about you, that's how it starts. And then it'll expand and then it'll get bigger and get bigger. Or just write chapter one. And that might end up being chapter 17 when the book comes out. But just write it. And you know, I get asked all the time, Liz, what's your advice about writing a book? And because mine was such a surprise, I can't give anyone any concrete advice of like, well, I would construct your chapters like this and I would start with this and I would finish with that. I just say, write. Figure it all out at the end, but just get the stuff out of you and do it from the heart and be authentic because you know that, again, I never wrote mine with an audience in mind. Mine was just written from the heart. Yeah. My, my soul laid bare and... You don't make any money in books. You make a pound per book. Is about average, and I get a pound per book. And I think so many people maybe think they're going to be millionaires when they write books, but you're not going to. Is the honest answer. You've got to write a lot of books. Yeah, you've got to be yeah. Harry Potter, whatever she's called, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about the work that you do now, the charities that you want to highlight. You talked about combat stress. You talked about help the heroes um, and op courage. Yeah. So those are the three sort of big headline charities that have helped you and and are still you're still on the journey with them with, yeah, with some of them absolutely you know combat stress are a great charity because they stand on the sidelines waiting to catch you and i think that's you, we talked about tribe a lot today didn't we and being part of that tribe and combat stress kind of make you feel like you're part of a new little family uh, and they've always done that you know helping heroes have been great they provided me all my counselors and whatnot going through but they're almost so big there's so many veterans on their books it's, it sort of almost loses the personal touch a little bit, I think. I mean, don't get me wrong, they still do great stuff. Yeah. Um, but combat stress are very personal. You know, they, I feel uh-huh. like they know each and every one of their people individually. Yeah. And then you also work for a charity. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. So whenever I came out of the forces, again, as far as I say, most veterans kind of struggle to find that square, we feel like a square peg in a round hole, many, much of the time when you're trying to find a new job and you leave. And I think and the statistics are like most veterans go through five jobs in three years when they leave because you come to that purpose thing, isn't it? You're trying to find that purpose again. And one of the, the first jobs I got when I left was working for this charity who are down the road from Odium and they're called Aerobility and they are a disabled flat Aerobility. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Aerobility. Aerobility. Um, but they're a disabled flying charity, so they essentially fund flying for anyone with any disability. And we're talking kids from six years old all the way up to I think our oldest flyer was ninety six years old. Any disability, so learning difficulties for kids limbs missing doesn't have to be related to military no no connections no. or service anyone and everyone uh-huh. and um but they also have an arm for veterans specifically so they have scholarships for veterans and that's where i joined them to get the basic funding and grants through to get our veterans flying and you know i had a real surreal moment there's veterans who have been picked up by us on herrick on mert 
wheeling past me in their wheelchairs in the office going right see you in an hour Liz and they're all flying and they will wheel themselves out to the aircraft and all the aircraft are adapted so that the, the controls that you usually you'd use your pedals are now on the hand controls yeah. and vice versa and we've got blind veterans flying we've got veterans with no legs veterans with no arms and the instructors are incredible but to see those guys wheeling past me and getting their pilot's licenses. We're not talking just going up for a jolly and have a look over your house. Yeah. They work all the way up to PPL. Okay. And some of them have gone on to buy their own aircraft and, and fly around the UK. And Amazing. Again, it gives that sense of purpose. I think as if you come out of the military and certainly if you come out medically discharged with an injury, you know, if you're not going to work full time, our brains need occupied and that's what really focuses them. They've got to learn stuff. So a, a, a veteran listening to this who thinks I'm up for a bit of flying, yeah, they're just aero... Aerobility, yeah. Look them up, Google them. They've got yeah. a great website and they do scholarships every single year funded by Boeing and Help for Heroes give money as well. And you'll get a chunk of flying hours and you go along, see if you enjoy it. And you're, so your fundraiser for them? Your, yeah, your... yeah, I do a lot of fundraising, lots of events and the corporate things. And they have a big, big black tie ball every year, which I always donate something to and, and, and help out on stage and whatnot, which is always quite funny. Yeah, they're a fantastic charity. I call it the Dream Factory because every day they make dreams come true. But I remember sitting in the office one day and a lot of the employees are disabled for obvious reasons because that's what AirAbility do. They give people back their purpose. And I'm in a room full of, you know, Harvey's great. He's got cerebral palsy. Stuart's in a wheelchair because he slept, walked out of a building when he was four years old. And, and Neil has got one arm and one leg because he was in a motorbike accident. And I'm sat there and I thought, it was about three weeks after the overdose. And I remember thinking I'm the most broken person in this room, but I was the most able-bodied. And I think that just really highlights for me PTSD and mental injuries can be just as de like debilitating as a physical injury. You know, they're all jolly and laughing in the crew room with various arms and legs missing, but I was the one that was crumbling in the background. But fantastic charity, absolutely look them up and, and go flying, more importantly. Yeah. <laughs> take me, you're allowed to take passengers too. That's probably quite a good place to leave it, unless there's anything else you want to get off your chest. No, thanks for having me. It's well, been a real pleasure. Well, it really kind of you to share your journey with us, taking us through uh, the dark days and the good days. And it seems you're in a good place now. And you've got real purpose now. You're making a real difference out yeah. there. You're big on social media. Your book's gone down well. People are creating the discussion. It's getting people like me want you on your podcast. Mm. I hope I'm changing the narrative a little bit on mental health. Because one of the things I always leave my talks with um, in person is that to give your mental health a number, which is what I do now, because it's so much easier to say I'm three out of 10 and I'm struggling. I think we all find those words I'm struggling really hard to say. So I give my mental health a number and you know, I don't have to explain why I'm a three today. I just tell someone I'm a three today and it means people can keep an eye on me a bit more. I can keep an eye on my own mental health a bit better and monitor like, you know, if I've been a three for a few days or weeks now I need to get help and reach out again. As I told you earlier, I've done plenty of times. Yeah. But for anyone listening, yeah, hopefully my story is changing the narrative a little bit for other people to know that really the, the, the crass line that we always say is okay to not be okay because we're human. Thank you. And the only other thing I would add is buy the book. It's a great read and... Apparently, she only gets a pound for it. <laughs> Same with the rest of the post. Um, but that's great. Thank you very much indeed. That is it now until the next episode. Links to Liz's charities will be in the show notes and you can have a look at those. 
if you're a veteran, if you qualify for this podcast, if you have a charity that you want to highlight, like Liz has, that's helped you recover from your wounds, etc., and you'd like to tell your story, then please get in touch. The best way is to get a hold of me via email, which is thesearchchicken at gmail.com. And one day, I will explain why it's called The Search Chicken. But there are a few people out there who know exactly why it is. And uh, that's our little chuckle. But one day, somebody might get me on a podcast. And I'll t- As I say, the next one will be out in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you very much. <laughs>